0: Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trod in the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger, I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth." Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. You are listening to
1: A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Zelwin Heidi, here today with David Apple to continue our discussion on the book of Revelation. David, how are you doing?
0: Doing great. Zelwin, good to be on with you. Good to be back. Well, too bad Willie's not here.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, I was kind of hoping that he could be with us, but it just. That's just the way it went today. He was unable to, to be with us, and we'll just have to carry on alone. I'm not sure how we'll do it, but we'll, we'll manage somehow, right? He,
0: he sends power.
1: <laughs> he's probably gone off onto some vision quest again, and we'll come back uh, bearing more answers than Could before. Be.
0: He's, now that he's in Arkansas, though, his growing season is extremely long. He might be getting his gourd patch already.
1: <laughs> already sitting under his... The earliest of his gourds. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I can, I can get behind that. How's the weather uh, out your way?
0: Oh, Paducah, spring is is in the air. It's coming. We had a big um, ice snowstorm. You know the the weatherman now exerts incredible control over people's minds and um, and forms mass uh, mass <laughs> mass uh, mind control. I don't know. He we we have to pay attention to the weatherman very closely, of course, but uh, we had a big ice and snowstorm, for us anyways, last week, and it's all now melting away. I think the high today, as we're recording, is supposed to be maybe even close to 60. So sun is shining, snow is melting, ice is gone, uh, the birds are chirping. I saw a robin, which is, of course, the harbinger of spring. So it's right around the corner for me, Zoan.
1: I like how you're, you know, you have all of this hopeful, you know, very optimistic kind of outlook right now, you know, very cheery, very spring oriented. And now I'm going to come in and be like, yeah, it's still winter.
0: Yeah, well, we, you know, we start with reading, who is this who comes from Basra? And, uh, and then you transition into, so we like to have that um, extreme sh- uh, swing of things onward fitly.
1: It's true. It's true. The weather out this way is, actually, it's been a little warm lately. Uh, a lot of the the ice that was kind of plaguing us last week has started to melt away, which is very helpful because I know that our our parking lot here at the church was pretty much a, a skating rink there for most of last week, which, thankfully, nobody injured themselves or got into any accident, but it was, it wasn't pretty, but now, but now things have have warmed up a little bit and things have melted down, but we still have a lot of snow on the ground. Spring is is a long ways off for us yet, David.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's coming for us. I don't. I think the groundhog went back. Did he see his shadow? I, think I he did. don't know. <laughs> I think I had heard that Punxsutawney Phil uh, went back into his hole. So, uh, but I like I said, I saw the robin, and I'm. I don't know. Adam Adam could give us better a better sense of how to read these signs. But I trust the birds, the blessed birds, more than the, the groundhog.
1: Eh, that's that's probably fair. But anyway, we should probably get rolling on our discussion today. So we're continuing our discussion on the, the book of Revelation. And last time we had talked about chapter 13, which, of course, is one of the, the key chapters in the entire book, talking about the vision of the two beasts and stuff like that. All of this, of course, was flowing out of the earlier discussion in chapter twelve about the war between the dragon and the, the children of the woman. But now, as we come into chapter fourteen, what what's going on here, David? Can you give us a, a general overview of this chapter before we get into the details?
0: Sure. Uh, chapter fourteen is the if you just stopped at chapter thirteen, you would you would draw the conclusion that there's kind of no hope for the saints. Um, So the dragon from chapter 12 tried to eat up the, the son of the woman, but he was taken up into heaven. And then she went out into the wilderness and the dragon pursued her, raised up his beasts, and then everybody got the mark of the beast. That's how chapter 13 ended. So if you just stop there, you miss what the saints are actually doing to combat the beast and to you know, what hope is there for those who don't receive the mark of the beast? And I think chapter 14, we should read it as the the conclusion of the end, at least of this part of the vision from chapter 12, 13, and 14. Now we're going to see who are those who didn't receive the mark and how do they resist the dragon? And what is the conclusion of that of that warfare, of that fight? So it's it's a picture of the church militant, and the the promised victory that comes uh, in the fight against the dragon. Sure,
1: sure. And you can see especially because in the beginning of chapter 15, uh, John will say that I saw another vision. So he makes a very clear break, a very clear transition there. And I do think it is very reasonable to take these three chapters as one entire unit that helps us to understand what it is that's happening, mm-hmm. not in heaven but actually on earth, uh, the the war on earth, right?
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, you don't want to say that like one part of the book is more important than another. And I think it's, you know, it's all building towards the end in chapters 20 through 22. But chapters 12 through 14 are really, I think it's the kind of the heart of the book. And as you think about John, Uh, Writing this to the church that's heavily persecuted, um, to those seven, you know, the the seven cities that get mentioned early in the book. Here is the call for perseverance. You know, it's it. He doesn't sugarcoat things. He doesn't say it's not going to be that bad, guys. But it is good for us to read chapter (laughs) fourteen and not just stop at thirteen, which has all the you know that has all the juicy details about the uh, the beast and the image of the beast and the. The mark of the beast—that's what people get fascinated by—and then sadly, they often stop in the book, and and it's just—who's ever heard of chapter fourteen?
1: Right. Yeah. It's it's one of those chapters that just doesn't get a lot of attention, unfortunately. So let's let's dig into the chapter a little bit, uh, start getting a little bit of detail. Uh, we have the the we, the vision where. The lamb is standing on Mount Zion, which I think is significant, and with him are the 144,000. So wh- what is happening in the first part of this chapter? What is, what is the vision which John sees?
0: Yeah, so he's going to see, he just got done describing uh, those who had the mark of the beast. And he, you know, he gives the number for the the beast, the number of the beast. And then in, in chapter 14, you have the opposing, now we have the opposing army, right? If you want to think of it as two armies here, the army of the beast and the army of the lamb. So uh, the lamb and his 144,000, uh, they have, instead of the mark of the beast, they have the name of the lamb and his father's name written on their foreheads. So that you have two, these two armies, it's, that's the vision. So you've got the these two armies, and uh, the number is certainly jumps out one hundred and forty four thousand. This is not the first time in John's Revelation that we've seen that number before, and especially not the first time that we've seen one hundred and forty four thousand with some kind of mark on them. Uh, So this this draws goes all the way back to chapter seven, where you have the angel going out into the into the world and marking you know, the 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe of, of Israel. And now we see what they are They're He's marking them there to protect them in chapter seven. Uh, But now they're not just those who are protected. They're those who stand with the lamb and they're part of his army.
1: Right, right. Yeah. And this, and this army, you know, we see them basically engaged in what, I mean, a kind of worship. I mean, they're singing the new song before the throne, and no one can learn that sonic except those who have been these who have been redeemed from the earth. You know, they are pure, they follow after the Lamb. I mean, the, the whole image is contrary to what we've seen before, where you have those who are defiled, those who, who are corrupted, those who follow the beast. Right?
0: Yeah. yeah, right. And the, you know, the it's again, of course, in the book of Revelation, the these things are are symbolic of deeper deeper things, or maybe deeper, you know, don't push too hard on that word, but saying that they're that they're virgins, um, that they're pure. This is talking about, uh, it's not necessarily that they're unmarried people, right? We don't want to take it literalistically. Um, but the, what it means here that they're pure, that they're virginal, um, is that they have not engaged in idolatry. Um, so throughout scripture, Idolatry goes along with adultery um, quite frequently. And that's what's being described here for why they're pure.
1: Right. Well, and and in that sense, the the mark of the beast in the previous chapter is a kind of adultery, right? It is a spiritual adultery uh, because they are turning away from God and going after these strange women, if you want to. I mean, if you want to use that imagery, they are. Go ahead.
0: Well, and just think, you know, we know how the, as the book goes on, as the revelation goes on, the enemy of God's people is described as a great whore, the whore of Babylon. So those who are virginal are those who have not, you know, they've not sullied themselves with the whore of Babylon. And, uh, you know, they're not engaged in any kind of adulterous uh, spiritual practice, which could include, you know, actual acts of adultery, uh, but it could it could here be things like the imperial cult. It could be things like, you know, returning back to syna- the synagogue or going back to the temple and to the sacrificial system that has been done away with. Um, it could be any of those things.
1: Now, should we understand the 144,000 as a particular group? Like, is this like a specific part of the church, or should we see ourselves within this group as
0: well? That's a good question. This goes, when we were doing chapter seven, you might recall this conversation that we had, you know, the, typically the, the way that I've often heard chapter seven interpreted is you've got the 144,000 who are the uh, Jewish Christians, right? Those who are physically of the, the, you know, descended from Israel. Um, And then in chapter 7, remember, John then sees the great multitude that no one could number. And that's then sometimes described as the Gentile portion of the church, that the Gentiles, you have both Jew and Gentile. I think it's it's probably just as well to see in chapter 7, the 144,000 as not being specifically Jewish Christians, um, and then the Gentiles, who you see later, but it's just a way of speaking of the true Israel. Um, as St. Paul would say in in Romans, or is it in Ephesians there, where he talks about the Israel of God, that might be Galatians. So I would see the 144,000 as the whole, you know, it's the church on earth. It's the church militant. Right. As opposed
1: to the church triumphant, of course, which is the language that's often used. Uh, yeah. So <clears throat> we have here the church at war, uh, the church at war with the beast at war with the dragon at war with all of these things, as we're going to see also in a little bit, you know, at war with Babylon and all of those things. But I mean, it is a church that is fighting. It is a church that is struggling. And for that reason, yeah, I do think that we can see ourselves within this group. uh, Those who have faith in Jesus, those who are, you know, who keep the commandments of God, they are the ones who are standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion.
0: Well, and and they're their war, their warfare is being carried out in worship, right? It's not, you don't have, at least not yet, you don't have any kind of conflict with the beast. Uh, you don't have any kind of conflict with the, um, the image of the beast, except that it's, I guess it would be implied, right? Is that those who uh, have worshiped the beast, those who sing the song of the beast, they don't know the song of the Lamb. And so, you know, what, what, how Christians engage in the warfare, the, the militant um, struggle of the church, you know, f- I don't know if we want to say first and foremost, but a primary consideration here is that they, they engage in worship. They're involved in their participants in the worship life of the congregation and that that actually is part of the spiritual warfare.
1: Well, because that act of worship is itself a declaration of war, war against the world, war against the devil, war against, you know, all of these things, because it's basically saying my allegiance is over here and it's not over here. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think allegiance is a great word for the book of Revelation. It comes up quite frequently and not it doesn't ever use the word allegiance. But I think that 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 taps into a lot of what Revelation is instilling in Christians is that we know where our allegiances lie and we don't betray them. Um, We're loyal to to Christ and we're loyal to uh, our brothers and sisters in the church. And this might
1: be the the first and maybe last time I ever liturgy post on the word fitly spoken. (laughs) (laughs) But it it makes me think of also like the Kyrie at the beginning of the service where you say, you know, Lord have mercy, calling on him to have mercy. Well, that, That Kyrie in Greek is itself a kind of confession. It's basically saying that Jesus is the Lord and not Caesar and not any of these other things. You're basically saying you are the Lord. You are the one in control. You are the one who is over all things. And so just that simple act itself is a declaration of your allegiance to the Lord. Yes, it, it calls on him for mercy, too, and we shouldn't overlook that. But just the fact that we call him Lord is itself a confession.
0: Yeah, and and so to maybe, to, I, see, I thought you were supposed to be a, a pietist, Selwyn, and <laughs> you're not supposed to know what the liturgy is. I thought those things were mutually exclusive. I'm a churchly pietist. Oh, all so. right, 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 right. <laughs> But uh, to go back to chapter 13. So if you don't have the mark of the beast, you don't have access to the the marketplace of the beast. So what do you have access to? Well, if you're part of this 144,000, you have the mark of the lamb and his father's name, you have access to Mount Zion, right? So you have those two, Zion is opposed to Babylon, or what's going to be described as Babylon, just a little bit later in the book. And again, that I think that's just a great way to picture it here. Um, Those who are excluded from Babylon have a home in in Zion. That is, that's a beautiful
1: picture too. Um, And I also think it's significant as we come to the end of this segment that the lamb is standing on earth. Um, You know, we, most of the time when we see him in the book of Revelation, he's standing up in heaven, you know, he's standing before the throne. The the, You know, we have the angels and the elders and the living creatures surrounding him kind of a thing and worshiping him. But at this point, the lamb is now standing on earth, on Mount Zion and in in among the 144,000. So, I mean, what what do we make of that?
0: Well, I think it's a great point. The the last time. So the lamb as a representation of Jesus. The last time we had heard about Jesus in this vision anyways, was that he was taken up. Right. He ascended into heaven um, and sat down at the right hand of the father. But then you you have a very, you know, you have John zooms in on what the beast is up to. And so now all of a sudden, you know, the, the question comes up, well, how is the church going to survive the opposition that they're facing? How is the church going to survive when you've got the sea beast and the land beast and the dragon at work in the world and the image of the beast? And it just sounds it's all uh, pretty gloomy. But then all right well here's the here's the answer is that the lamb has not he has not departed, but he takes his stand. Um, it sounds like Psalm 2 kind of stuff, right The nation's rage and the heathens plot in vain, but the Lord has established his king on Mount Zion um, and the earthly ministry of Christ, his kingdom it may not be of this world, uh, but it is advancing in this world
1: yeah. And I, I really do think that that is something that we should hold on to as well, because it's very easy for us to become pessimistic, to become very gloomy, as, you, as you've been saying, you know, think that the beast and Satan and the dragon and, you know, it seems like they're they're winning, right? It always seems like they're the ones who are overcoming. They're the ones who are persecuting the saints. And it seems like there isn't a whole lot that we can do. It can very often seem like we're alone here on earth. That God is, yeah, he's off somewhere, but he's not really with us. You know, it can feel that way sometimes. But Revelation 14 makes it very clear here that no, God is not far off. God is here among his people. You know, he is, he's in the trenches. He's, he's fighting with us and for us and being with us always so that no matter what is happening, no matter how bad things get, even when we're excluded from babylon even when we're excluded from the economic systems of the beast yet we still have Christ with us and i think that that's something that should give us comfort no matter what
0: yeah and in in the next part of chapter 14 you're going to see maybe that if if the beginning here is about uh, the worship assembly uh, what's going to what's what it's going to transition into then is the the witness that the church gives and that there is a victory and we can talk about whether that victory occurs in time or only at the end of time and kind of how that the way that you understand that i think is is significant for how you read the the book of revelation well very good well with that we need to take our first break
1: break, so we'll be right back with more a word fitly spoken right after this listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zell Heidi here today with David Apple, talking about Revelation 14. So in the previous segment, David, we had finished talking about the first five verses of this chapter, but now we want to dig into the next section, uh, verses 6 through 13. So can you give us a a general overview of what's happening in this particular segment?
0: Yeah, you're going to see eventually it's going to get to the point where the Lamb the lamb's wrath, uh, is going to be described as kind of trampling down or, well, that, that comes at, at the very end of the book, but, um, the, the lamb emerges victorious over those who receive the mark of the beast. And the way that it's, again, in the book of revelation, it's sometimes it's, it's kind of, uh, I don't know what the right word to use is, Elwyn uh, when kind of herky-jerky or it jumps, over things and so it it's never directly says um, then the 144,000 engaged in warfare with the you know those who had the mark of the beast. but what is described I think is the the preaching ministry of the church, the witness that the church gives to the world and in that we we see a apocalyptic vision of the the warfare that the church carries out. And the outcome of that warfare is uh, the victory of the saints. Yeah. Well, and especially as you get towards the
1: end of this segment, you have, you know, the blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So, I mean, it is it is preaching. It is a declaration, uh, especially to the world, because when we'll see this in the first part, but it is a preaching with a purpose and that it eventually will end up in the, the blessedness of the church and the call for endurance as well so we'll we'll get into those details but so let's let's focus on the angels themselves here as the first way of de- uh, dealing with specifics yeah. so and, the, uh, go ahead
0: yeah so the the one hundred forty four thousand have been surrounding the lamb and then all of a sudden you get this description this is what i mean by it it shifts these angels are going out and john sees three angels and our most of our listeners are probably going to be familiar with this pe- this part of the Book of Revelation from um, the readings on Reformation Day, uh, because the first angel who goes out flies overhead, and he's got an eternal gospel, and so he's proclaiming this eternal gospel, right? So this is what I mean by here is a vision of the angel, which. You know, certainly John sees a heavenly angel, but it's just the angel is a figure of the the preaching ministry of the church. Do you think that's fair to say, Zelwyn, or do, do you want me to kind of spell that out a little bit more?
1: No, I I think I think that's very fair because you'll notice, especially in verse six, it says, you know, gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. So this this proclamation is not given to the church only. I want to say only. But it is something that is proclaimed to all the world. It is something that even those who have, you know, worshiped the beast, those who have taken the mark, they hear this message too, which is why, um, you know, the, the calling to fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. That, of course, will be a, an aroma of death to them because of their, yeah, because of their sin, but it is still, a message which must be proclaimed. You know, the the gospel is not something to pro- be proclaimed only in the church. It is, yeah. you know, within the the walls of the church or something like that. It is something which must be proclaimed to the whole world.
0: Yeah, and the you know trying to identify the this angel, I think is, I think it's a mistake. Now, maybe maybe you have a different opinion there, Zelwyn, and maybe our listeners want to say, you know, want to stick with the Reformation. Uh, exegesis here and say, no, it is Martin Luther. And he (laughs) is, I mean, that's, that comes from, I think it was Johannes Bugenhagen's funeral sermon for Luther. Am I remembering my, this correctly? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That he identified Luther as this particular angel, and that's why it gets read on Reformation day. I just think it's a mistake to, to specify that, and that this gets back into something that we had discussed before on this series of looking, f- looking for the book of Revelation as kind of a, a roadmap for the entire history of the church. I think that when you do that and you specify, well, this is this particular man at this particular time in the history of the church, what you end up doing then is you, you limit how you can apply that, this passage to the church presently or to the church prior to um, the reformation. So if we take the angel as uh, embodying the entire ministry of the church, the witness of the church, sure Luther is a preacher and a significant one in that. I'm not trying to downplay the the great reformer, the blessed Dr. Martin Luther of blessed memory um, <laughs> may peace be upon him. Uh, but what I'm saying is that it's not only Luther who ca- who carries that out.
1: Well, and as as you said, the, the exegesis that leads to this identification is this assumption that revelation is kind of a play by play uh through history so if you start in revelation one you know that's towards the time of the, the beginning of the church and by the time we get to revelation 21 you know that is the the end of, of history so it's kind of a, just a straight line but that was a very common way of interpreting this book in the time of the Reformation. I mean, Luther interprets it this way, Melanchthon interprets it this way, Buchenhagen apparently interprets it this way, and so it's always just trying to figure it out. You know, where are we within the scheme of the Book of Revelation? You know, at what point are we within the book? And yeah, yeah I I do think that that is problematic, as you said, because it does. Uh, end up leading you perhaps into some very strange conclusions, or as you said, very forced conclusions. But I, I do like the way that you put it in the sense that, you know, Luther is not, not here, <laughs> but he's just not the only one in, in consideration.
0: Yeah, it's overly specific. And and what happens when you get overly specific is that certain parts of the book then become, um, if, say, for instance, the Mark of the Beast, if the Mark of the Beast is only about, you know, what happens at the time of Nero, Caesar, or at the time of Diocletian, or at the time of the Pope in the Middle Ages, well, then when we read it now, well, that stuff already happened. And this is, I'm saying this for Willie's sake, because I know this is a point he likes to make, that Mm -hmm. these things are not just, yes, you can see instances where, okay, this comes to a four. Uh, In church history, but the book of Revelation is not; it's not inapplicable to us. It's not just saying all this stuff already happened; you don't have to worry about it anymore. It's meant to call us to perseverance now, and to say, "All right, this is; these things are; these things continue to happen in the life of the church." Yeah, the gospel must continue to be preached. It's an eternal gospel, and uh, the the church has that role to play as that angel, the angelic voice preaching
1: yeah nor is it something that is inapplicable because it's all in the future right and that's kind right. of the other extreme that we're trying to avoid here to make it all this futurist kind of thing this is all going to happen eventually but maybe not to us kind of a thing no the the point is is that this is something that is true for us as it's true for every Christian and every time
0: now the the message that the angel preaches is uh, maybe a, a, an interesting formulation of the gospel. You know he he, he doesn't <laughs> preach he doesn't preach the message of justification, does he? He at least not in those at least not that specific. The, it's just a call to fear God, the true God. So it's a call to worship the true God. And I, I you know we could say that within that is. The what we would say is more specifically the gospel of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and that his righteousness is credited to you, uh, you know, by the judicial decree of the father. I, I wouldn't oppose any of that, but it is just interesting to note the the gospel is formulated this way. Fear God, give him glory. And worship him. And
1: I think, I think that's an excellent point because for whatever reason, we as Lutherans, have, have basically come to the conclusion that the gospel is really only that very specific formulation to the point where, uh, sermons will very often put it in exactly those terms. And I'm not saying that I haven't done this too, you know, that yeah. we, we talk about the forgiveness of sins and we should. That is the gospel. But we have a very, I don't know if you want to call it narrow understanding
0: of the gospel. Does that make sense? Yeah, maybe, maybe rigid. I, I that's that's the way that I would think about it. Is like you know, if if the gospel is, if the message of the gospel is, you know, the forgiveness of sins, well, then this angel is not preaching the gospel because he doesn't talk about your sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. At least not explicitly. And right. what I think we're saying is that is part of the message, but. That is not the only way to, to preach the gospel.
1: Well, let's let's ask it this way. What is the ultimate purpose of the forgiveness of sins? What is the ultimate purpose of salvation? If we think of salvation purely in human terms and kind of even individualistic terms, we can very often end up thinking that it's like, well, I've been forgiven my sins and I'm going to go to heaven and that's the gospel. That's kind of the whole purpose. That's the whole yeah. reason of why we're here at all. But I, I think that's actually a little bit. I'm going to say narrow again because I like to be a little bit more <laughs> charitable, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, it's it's narrow. I'm, I'm just I'm just giving you yeah. grief.
0: Yeah, that's fine.
1: But. It's, it's narrow because I think the ultimate purpose of salvation, the whole reason why we are being saved is because it glorifies God. And, and for that reason, you know, we can see here the gospel itself. We are giving him glory because he is the one who has delivered us. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who has done all things necessary. And when we get to heaven, we're not going to be sitting around saying, oh, you know, how nice this is kind of a thing, you know, just purely in comfort kind of terms. But we're going to be worshiping God and giving him glory forever for the things that he
0: has done. So you're saying we're going to glorify God and enjoy him forever? (laughs) Something like that. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, and I think and I, I know that this is language that we don't typically use as Lutherans. And that's fine. I mean, I just, when we think of the gospel in purely individual kind of terms, which is what I was getting at, I think we can kind of get away from what the Bible often speaks of, you know, as the, the glory of God. You know, that, well, I mean, think of the Old Testament, for example, where uh, God says, I'm not going to save you because of you, because because c- you're so good. I'm going to do it for the sake of my holy name, you know, for my own glory kind of a thing. So we, we see in it uh, that this is all for his glory.
0: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right on. So the, the, I don't know. I mean, we could, we could. We could go on down. I mean, think about how Jesus prays at the end of his, in the book of John. Um, you know, he wants, Father, glorify me now with the glory that I shared with you before the foundation of the world. And the father responds with, I will glorify my, I have glorified and will glorify. So the we don't want to get into this position where we say, well, the theology of glory, I know that's a, a phrase that I'm supposed to oppose. And therefore, mm-hmm. any talk of glory is somehow um, wrong because then you'd have to take you know you'd have to take exemption with what Jesus says, <laughs> and that uh, we want our terms to be defined biblically. So to glorify God, to be called back to fear the Lord—that is what happens when the gospel is preached. And yeah, you can we can get more specific, and we should and we need to about. What is all contained within this message? But we don't just want to get into a place where we kind of have these knee-jerk responses of fear God, give him glory. That sounds a lot like, that just sounds like law. So this must not be, how is that preaching the gospel? Yeah, yeah. And
1: I, and I think that's that's really, as you said, what we need to avoid is this kind of just knee-jerk, I hear this, that sounds like this, therefore it must be bad. Um, we just we just need to have a a broader and a I hate to say looser, but a a more a, a wider understanding of what the gospel is in many cases because yeah. it, it it's all it's all contained into one thing.
0: More robust, you know. I said rig- rigidity earlier. It's not. It's not rigidity. I, I just mean that we get it. We, and we all do this. I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at, you know, you, there are certain phrases that just, you know, that, that you hammer on. And there are certain phrases like the forgiveness of sins that those should be beloved phrases. But that's not the only way the Bible speaks about salvation. That's not the only way the Bible speaks about the gospel. So to have some uh, robustness to our understanding and the mental flexibility to not just be pigeonholed into it must be formulated this way or I don't know what to do with it. That's all we're saying. Yeah, I like it.
1: Well, I mean, let's let's look at the other angels, too. I feel like they're kind of getting... (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. So the first the first angel preaches the gospel. The second angel comes, and I think you know, I'll, let's put it this way. He says, "Here's the outcome," and it's the outcome for those who reject it. So the second angel announces what happens is that the city of Babylon is fallen. Cue the music, right, Zolan? Um Babylon Beautiful. is fallen, and. That's basically all he says. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality.
1: Which I would point out is also an expression of gospel. Go, up, go on. Because uh, very often, especially in the Old Testament, when you have God coming to his people, uh, the, the message that he proclaims is not only that I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to bring you back and put you in your own land. The message is often your enemies are going to be defeated. Yeah. All of these people who afflicted you will come to an end. And that's what we see happening here. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great is a wonderful gospel message because it's basically saying the the, the dragon, the beasts, the whole system is going to fall. And we can rejoice knowing that God is in his holy temple, Right. That he is, he is the one in in control. He is the one who is victorious. So, yeah, this this is
0: gospel too. And later later in the book, we're going to get more more detail about this about the vision. You know, you're going to get a lot more on who, the the whore of Babylon. So, I would just say maybe let's let's save that for a later time. But yeah. to go off of your point, that's why we started this episode with that reading from um, the man who comes from Edom and Basra who has trampled out the vineyard of God's wrath, what is the good, how is that good news? Well, it's because he has defeated, you have real enemies, Christians, right? The church has enemies. And yes, we want all to be converted, but we also know that not all will be. And so there has to be a, a, the flip side of salvation is that there's judgment on those who reject Christ. Yeah, amen, indeed. Indeed. Well, and then the third
1: angel, to just kind of keep moving forward here, comes in and he proclaims, well, he he, he, he gives the law after the gospel, David, and we can't listen to him
0: for that reason. <laughs> yes. So he he describes in more detail what happens to those uh, who were part of that Babylon, right? So it, you kind of, you get the second angel announces it, hey, the the uh, Babylon has fallen. And then the third angel says, here's what Here's what happened to them, and you know, I think we immediately go to the end, the final day here, Judgment Day, Um, and I think that that's it's hard to it's hard to deny that that's that that would be the right interpretation, don't you think, Selwyn? Because it's it sounds like such a final kind of judgment. I guess the only thing I would say here is to go back to how we described that first angel and not being overly specific that that God. God's judgments do get revealed in history. And even though they're not the final permanent judgment, things like the destruction of the temple really were the revelation of God's judgment and the the downfall of heathen things, pagan systems. I think we should see those as the outcome the gospel going through the world, and God does put down, um, in time, sometimes God does vindicate his saints. Absolutely. We're going to
1: go a little long in this section because it's our podcast and we can do what we want. But I, I do think that the the proclamation of, you know, the, these who have worshipped the beast, those who have received the mark, they're going to suffer God's wrath. Yes, that is something that, like you said, is going to happen at all times, you know, because God is going to vindicate his people at all times. But this is as we're going to see a little bit later in this chapter too, that it there is a finality to it, right? Uh, because the smoke of their torment is going up forever and ever; they have no rest. This is a clear declaration of hell. I mean, yeah. to 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 use the, the the plain language,
0: right? Yeah, and maybe maybe we should. Uh, make sure that we we kind of do away with some of. Sometimes we we say things like, "Well, what is hell? It's the absence of God, right?" Maybe you've said that, Zelwyn, but here it's described as the the presence of the Lamb, right? They will drink his his wrath in his presence. So I think we should just, you know, we should we should be a little careful with how we we say these things. And I, I get the instinct for that. Nobody wants to picture um, Jesus as like. Enjoying eternal conscious torment, but this is the that is the way his victory is described here. That he conquers his enemies, and in his presence he makes them every knee must bow to him. Some in worship, but those who opposed him will bow to him in um, in fear. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think maybe the, the way to put it is Jesus isn't getting some sick pleasure out of this, nor are the angels getting some sick pleasure out of this, you know, as if it's like, you know, this twisted, demented, I'm, I'm really enjoying doing this to you kind of a thing. Uh, really what it is, it is a, a, a recognition of his victory, as you put it, you know, that those who have been opposed to him, you know, Jesus is getting... He's, he's getting victory over them and they are getting what they deserve. Yeah, and so God, God in this sense is carrying out what is right. He's doing what is right. And what is right in this case is giving judgment. And we sometimes think of judgment as this kind of wrong thing, you know, as this bad thing or whatever. And that's why we want to uh, I, I don't know, It's why we don't talk about it, but the the judgment of God is good, it is righteous, it is holy, and so for for them to be tormented in this way because of their sins, because of their rejection, is justice, it is righteousness, it is holiness. I mean, they're getting, God is doing what is right in this case, and that's why they're being tormented in this
0: way. Yeah, so then the, the final little section here, this the cu- last couple of verses are, um, so you get the description of those who had the mark of the beast, and now um, those who had the mark of the lamb are, just dis- are, you know, it's a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God, who have faith in Jesus, and then you get a, a declaration of blessing on them. So the declaration of God's judgment comes but now the declaration of his benediction, his blessing on the saints, blessed are those who die in the Lord. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, for they have rest. Well, it ended on the gospels so who are okay now. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> except that the vision goes on, but yeah, right, right. At, at least in this section you have, and we'll maybe I'll tie a little a bow on it here. You had the vision on Mount Zion. Then in the middle section here, you have a, a you have the, the war being carried out and you have the outcome of that war. And the reason that's that's important for the church that John was writing to and the church of all times is so that there would be a call for endurance, that there wouldn't be apathy in the church, that there wouldn't be, yeah, I think apathy is the best, is the best word for it, that we wouldn't just sort of throw our hands up and say, well, it's just really bad and there's nothing we can do. Those who labor in the Lord don't labor in vain. We labor for uh, a victory. The the
1: third angel's message is also a call for us to watch, to pay attention. Because, you know, if we give in to worshiping the beast, if we receive the mark out of fear, out of, you know, a desire to not suffer or something like that, then we have not done what we're supposed to do. And so that's why there is also a call for endurance. Yeah, it's going to be hard, but at the same time, we don't want to do the alternative, which is to fall into this. But With that, we do need to take our second break, so we'll be right back with more on A Word Fitly Spoken. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zell and Heidi with David Appold, continuing our discussion on the book of Revelation, chapter 14. So we've talked about most of the chapter up to this point, David, but now we need to look at the final segment, uh, verses 14 to 20. So can you give us uh,
0: an overview again, and then we'll talk about specifics? Sure. There's a It's a harvest scene. Okay, so you go from the lamb with his 144,000 worshiping him to these three angels in succession. And now Jesus here is seen as, uh, John describes him as one like a son of man seated on the clouds. And he sends out his angels to put in the sickle. And so this is what I mean by the harvest scene. There's going to be two, two depictions of a harvest. One is of the grain and one is of the of, uh, of grapes. So this is what's described here. And what is, um, what is seen is the, I think, again, here you have certainly a, our minds are drawn to the end of all things. And it's fitting, you know, in chapters 12 through 14, you have this vision of um, the church's war with the dragon and the beast. And now, as we come to the end of that vision, John is seeing the final outcome of these things. So it all ends with a harvest of grain and of grapes. Yeah. So if we're looking at specifics,
1: then we meet the one like the son of man seated on the cloud. Uh, And how is how is he depicted? I mean, what is what is the the imagery here of clouds and crowns and stuff like that? And what's this all mean?
0: Yeah, well, it's just I think it's worth paying attention to the the changes in, so Jesus is the, the lion of the tribe of Judah at one point, he's also the lamb of God with the um, seven spirits going out from him. Um, here, he's described in, Dan, in uh, like Daniel's vision, the son of man on the clouds, but he has a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So sort of similar to the way that John the Baptist describes uh, Jesus in his preaching um, that he's coming with the, um, oh gosh, now it, it just winnowing fork. Of, yeah with the winnowing fork in his hand. Um, he's, he's depicted here in his, his final glory, his eschatological glory. He is the, and it's, it's worth pointing out. He has the sickle in his hand, but then he sends out his angels to actually do, do his work on his behalf. So he's the, he is the authority carrying it out through his, through his servants. Well, but the angel
1: calls out to him and says put in your sickle which kind of sounds like he's giving a command here. I mean, <laughs> what what do what do we make of that? You know, why why does the angel call out to him to to do this?
0: Yeah, I think you you have some trinit some good trinitarian theology there helps to kind of unpack that so that it's not it's not that Jesus is the servant of the angel, um but the angel is is bringing the command of the father and the son is Uh, you know, he's carrying out the father's command. So it's sort of like the way that we would explain, you know, Jesus sits at the right hand of the father and they rule together. So the the work of the Trinity is one. And so even though, yes, the angel tells Jesus to do it and Jesus does it, he then also a little bit later, it says another angel came out of the temple and he too had a sharp sickle. So who's the one who has the sickle, sickle and who's the one performing the harvest? Well, it is the father's command. It's the son's doing, and it's carried out by the angels. I, I just don't think we should see these things as opposed to each other. Uh, but the the, tr- the Trinitarian theology that underlies this helps you understand that, you know, the works of the Trinity are one. They're united. Sure.
1: sure. Do you, And I, I, I'm not disagreeing with that at all, but... Do you think you could also see it as a request rather than a command? You know, put in your sickle and reap, O oh Lord,
0: kind of a thing. I hadn't thought of that, but when you say it that way, it makes me think of the angel who brought the prayers of the saints. Is this where you're going? That the I angels, know, yeah. yeah, the the angels earlier in the book of Revelation brought the the incense of the prayers of the saints into heaven. And so if if that's what you're getting at, I think that's, yeah, that's actually, that fits quite well. That the angel, here is the prayer of the saints and the son of man gladly carries it out. The yeah. answer is yes.
1: Well, and I'm not saying that the other thing is totally off either. I think it's a, I think it's a both and kind of thing because we can and we should, as John does actually at the end of the book, you know, pray for the coming of the Lord. We We should pray for him to return to carry out his judgments, and he will do what is right. So when he comes in that sense, it is not only because he comes when it was determined to, but he's also coming in answer to the prayers of his people. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, I think it's it's a both and. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm bridging the gap here,
0: I guess, is what I'm sure. saying. So it, it says that the time for the the harvest is ripe, or the time to reap is ripe. And this, you know, what what does that mean? How do you know when it's uh, the ripe time for the harvest? This is it. It's reminiscent of uh, the way that God spoke to Abraham back before he came into the land of Canaan. You know, He gives him the promise that one day his descendants would come out of Egypt and would gain possession of the land, but the the iniquity of the, the Amorites, right? it might say all the other ites too, um, right. had, had not yet been filled up. Right. And so I think that that language, you know, there is, God has set a day and a time and a limit for sin, uh, but it hasn't, obviously it hasn't reached that point yet, but there is this call for when the time is ripe that the son of man will put in the sickle. He's not late. He's not, he's not slow as some count slowness. Yeah, and I think
1: that's something that we need to emphasize again and again, that the judgment comes at the right time because of the limit that has been placed onto sin. This this idea of sin being ripe, of the harvest being at the uh, at the right time kind of a thing, of the harvest of judgment being at the right time, is basically saying that God has determined that it will come to this point. You know, the number of sins will come to this number sort of a thing. They'll fulfill out their allotment, and then the judgment will come. And the reason why I think we should emphasize that is because we can think of sin as being this kind of out of control, the world's just going downhill, everything's just bad, why is it getting so bad kind of a thing you know, that, that God isn't really in control of anything. Yeah. But when we recognize that the judgment comes at the right time, at the time of the harvest, you know, because the iniquity has been filled up, then we recognize that, no, God isn't, you know, just sitting ignoring us. He's actually waiting for the, the right time to carry out the judgment when all these things will be at their fullness kind of a thing. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the the image of of a great harvest at the end, you know, is part of part of Christ's own preaching. You can think of the parable of the weeds and the wheat. You have both of them growing up together, and uh, at the end comes the final separation. So he allows, he permits, he knows that there's weeds among the wheat, um, but he tells his angels not to go out until it's the right time. And and that, that image of harvest has both the note of judgment for the, the weeds or for those who are who need to who will be judged, uh, but it also has the um, the note of salvation that when the grain has grown up, you know, if you think of St. Paul saying that the church is the field of God, right? We are part of that grain. Christ is the first fruits and we are the the full harvest the saints will be gathered. So it's both the harvest image has both a, a note of separation, but it also has the the gathering of the grain into the barn. It's a, it's a great double-sided image is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and, and something else to, to mention with that too, is that evil and wickedness and iniquity, they also come to fruition. There is a growth in wickedness in that sense, you know, because we we usually think of faith as being a kind of like, you know, like a tree or like a plant or something that grows. Well, wickedness also grows. And so we see towards the end of all things, the the fullness of sin, the, uh, the you know, the man of lawlessness coming into the forefront kind of a thing that basically... What this is all leading to is the the final expression of that sin. So yeah, things seem to get worse in that sense. But at the same time, they come to fruition. They come to the end. And when they are at their ripest, you know, when they come into their time kind of a thing, then the judgment comes.
0: Yeah, and I guess we should, um, the reason that we are paying more attention to the the judgment aspect of harvest here is because that's what uh, happens in revelation. Right. Uh, You know, I I just made the point. It could be, this image could be used as God is gathering in his grain and that, that comes out in Christ's teaching, but it can also, and here in revelation, it's going to focus on what he does with these, with the grapes. So um, the, the, the ripening of these grapes, are they good grapes or are they bad? This sounds very much like Isaiah you know, the song of Isaiah chapter five, where, you know, the Lord looked for good grapes, but behold, only only wicked grapes grew up. Well, what it, so what, how do you harvest wicked grapes? What do you do with them? You, It says here that he's going to, he's going to harvest, he's not going to let them keep growing. He's not going to let them take over, um, but he harvests them and, and he destroys them, right? That's what you right. do with bad grapes. Right. Well, and I think, I think, you know, why grapes kind of a thing. It made me think of
1: earlier when it is talking about Babylon said to, is making the the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And so grapes in this sense are a negative image in this part of the book because grapes lead to wine leads to drunkenness. So I, I think in this sense, uh, grapes here are a representation of the sins right and it is these grapes which will be trodden and destroyed and the the blood will flow from them so i i think it's there's it's just nice little connections between the various parts of this book don't you think
0: oh of course and the, i think that's what we're one of the things that we are trying to accomplish with this series is to 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 not just focus on Sort of our our um, favorite parts of the book, or the f- to, I've used the word fast. You can get fixated or fascinated by one one part of the Book of Revelation, and what happens then is you you lose its connection in with the rest of the book. And so that's a great point to make is the connection between Babylon and the grapes of Babylon, and the the stomping out of those grapes. And so how this little vision wraps up then in chapter 14 is the wine press, the grapes are, are harvested. They're dropped into the wine press and then they're stomped out. So the, the grapes receive the wrath of God. Um, and here's where you get, you know, we are, we are opposed. Are we not Zelwyn to, to the, the singing, the grapes of wrath. We we do not like to sing that song. And I don't just say that because I'm in Kentucky. but that is not a depiction of it's not the battle hymn of the Republic. That's my point here. Um, This is the final judgment. Right. Right.
1: Well, and, and the fact that these grapes are thrown into the wine press outside of the city, you know, that the, those who are wicked, uh, the, the grapes in this sense are cast out of the city and that is where they are trodden. So, I mean, you do have this imagery of, you know, being thrown out, uh, the outer darkness, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, that sort of thing, and also that they will be trodden underfoot. I mean that that's also imagery used within the Bible that Christ will put all enemies under His feet. So, I mean this is this is all connected. I mean it's it's a very picturesque way of talking about the victory of Christ and talking about the judgment which is to come.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so the, the final vision here is of a river. And so this is going to come back in uh, on the total sort of flip side with the river of life. But here you have a river of blood that comes out of this wine press. And it's described this way. The blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Um, so you get some some actual numerical measurements here. And uh, you know, trying to trying to figure out exactly the meaning here. I think the sixteen hundred. I know you you are a fan, a great fan of numerological things, Zelwyn. So <laughs> what's what's the sixteen hundred, and what's what's going on with the up to the horse's bridle? How do we want to understand that? Oh, you're going to make me do this, okay? Well, I want to hear what you say, and then I'll I'll correct you. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> well, uh, there's a lot of things going on here. And I think the first thing to note is, like you said, I do think that this is a kind of river. I used to think of it as just kind of radiating out from the wine press. But I do think that a river is a very good way to look at this because then you can see connections to other things. Uh, the contrast with the, the river of life, for example, or the river which comes out from the, the vision of the temple in Ezekiel, where you also get depth measurements, you know, eventually it's described as being over his head kind of a thing. So, I mean, you have this imagery of a, a kind of the inverse of the river of life, which is the river of blood, the river of judgment, the river of wrath. And the fact that it is blood show, uh, recalls the, the judgment laid upon Egypt. You know, when the, the Nile was turned to blood, the, the height of the, The blood, I mean, is described as a description of, you know, the severity of this wrath, you know, that this is happening to such an extent that it's coming out, what, four, five, six feet deep kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, And going on for 1600 stadia and uh, the 1600 in this case, I think you can see it as a twice 40, like 40 times 40. And 40, of course, being a, ju- uh, a number of judgment, right? The 40 days of the, the wilderness, the, for- uh, the 40 years of the wilderness, the 40 days of the flood. You know, it is an expression of God's wrath. And yeah. so all of these things together show that this is the outcome of God's judgment, that he is tying all these things together into one image, which shows the, the full extent of his wrath against sin
0: yeah and then he brings it to an end and i think just to I, I would agree with what you said there the connection or the the contrasting it with the river of life especially the one that ezekiel sees um is great here because that river the river of life gets deeper and deeper and deeper and it goes out it goes all the way into the sea and if you remember in ezekiel it actually continues into the sea and it changes the sea so it is a it is a never ending um, it's kind of an infinite river, the river of life. Here this river is it's not getting any deeper. Yes, there's a severity to it, right? It's high and it's long. 1600 stadia comes out to uh, 180 miles or so. So it's it's not like God's wrath is no big deal, but it's not getting any deeper and it does have uh, it does have an end in contrast to the river of life, which is infinite. Now, I, I realize when I say that, that, that could almost sound like a, a universalistic um, hope, and that's not what I mean. I just mean that the wrath of God is, it's in contrast to his mercy or to his salvation. It is, um, it's not as impressive. Is that fair to say, Zullen? <laughs> <is that> like-
1: <laughs> well, I, I know what you mean, but it, it made me think immediately of, uh, you know, that uh, Carrying out the judgment to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand yeah. generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Yeah, I mean God's wrath is, I guess you could say, limited. Uh, but we understand limited in the sense that you know it's not it's not what He really wants for His creation. He He does it because yeah. it's right, but it's not His His will. I hate to put he's, it that way because. Well, he's-
0: I think you said it better earlier. You said it's, there's not some sort of sadistic pleasure that he takes. It is just, just, and it is, it is permanent. I mean, I'm the, nothing that we're saying here is meant to say, like, at some point he's going to say, all right, enough is enough guys. Um, But the river of his judgment, it, let's put it this way. It pales in comparison to the river of life and the river of life is what, that's where we draw our, our hope and our comfort from. Yeah. You could even
1: call this the river of death yeah. <laughs> if you really want to make the contrast. So, well, David, we're coming to the end of the episode. I think we've had some good discussions on this chapter. Is there anything else you want to say before we close it out?
0: No, just, uh, I think seeing chapter 12, we, we get the readings on all saints day, um, St. Saint Michael and all ain't not, not all saints day St. Saint Michael and all angels. You get that passage in chapter 12, Reformation Day, you get a little bit of this, chapter 14, but um, seeing the whole, you know, this whole vision, 12, 13, 14, as kind of the heart of the book of Revelation, I think is a, is just what I would kind of re-impress on people. And so read it all together. Um, take it all together. Very good.
1: Well, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Owen Heidi, here today with David Apple. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, Please check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com, slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordbitly. God love you, and God bless.
0: Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Revelation fourteen twelve and 13.